it's, it's really a pleasure to be back again uh, and to be here particularly uh, to celebrate tomorrow but, uh, uh, and to have an opportunity to tell you about what I've been doing and uh, this new aspect of my career. Uh, I'm working for the U.S. government and because I'm working for the U.S. government I have to start every talk I give by saying that these are my opinions those of the United States and the Department of Defense and all of that. Hopefully they agree with what I'm about to say, but that's neither here nor there, okay? And I thought I'd start by showing you sort of what this Uniform Services University and the health sciences is and where it is and all of that. Uh, it's here, okay, in the woods of what used to be a golf course. Uh, it's a beautiful setting. We have deer roaming around next to the medical school buildings. Uh, this large complex is our medical complex. Uh, this is the rebuilt naval, uh, Bethesda Naval Medical Center uh, that you may know of. Um, and this is the new wing that's just been completed, and that's the new Walter Reed Medical Center. Okay, Walter Reed used to be downtown in center of Washington. They moved it out, built a brand new facility. And so all of this are clinical facilities. These are mostly parking garages and a variety of support buildings and all that. It's a huge campus, actually. Um, and this is Wisconsin Avenue. On the other side of Wisconsin Avenue is the NIH. Whole NIH, the clinical center, all of the institutes and their laboratories, not all of them, many of them are off site now, but a huge complex of medical research. Uh, you put all this together, and this is really, uh, I don't think there's an, uh, a center of, of medical uh, facilities and knowledge and expertise that's comparable in the world, really, put all this together. And so it's really a uh, remarkable place to work. So we're going to talk about traumatic brain injury, and I want to talk about it in the military, but before I get there, I want to just sort of remind you, and I'm sorry, these are US figures. Uh, I was going to try to get uh, uh, British figures for this, but I'm, I mean, I'm sure the problem is comparable. Uh, um, it's the leading cause, traumatic brain injury is the leading cause of death and disability worldwide. It's the leading cause of death in persons between the years one in 44. In the United States, there are 1.7 million traumatic brain injuries per year. These lead to 1 million individuals being treated in emergency rooms, over a quarter of a million hospitalizations, and 52,000 deaths. 52,000 deaths, to make some comparisons, is more than breast cancer, 40,000. More than pancreatic cancer, 20,000. More than influenza. This is a huge problem. Uh, and a very expensive one. It's estimated that there are 5.3 million Americans with long-term disability related to prior TBI, 2% of the population. That's probably an underestimate. Okay? which means that there are as many people with long-term disability related to TBI as there are people with Alzheimer's disease. 
Now, TBI is an established risk factor for dementia, for subsequent dementia. But notice I say just dementia. Many people have written uh, and have suspected that this is Alzheimer's disease. But when you actually go back and look at the studies in which this statement is made, it's risk factors for dementia, and there are no postmortem studies. So the idea that this could be a different pathology, I think, really has to be considered seriously. It's not necessarily Alzheimer's disease. But it's certainly an established risk factor. Okay. But really, today I want to talk about uh, TBI in the military, particularly the experience we've had in the past decade, although, as you'll see very quickly, I'll have to do some renewal. Uh, we'll have to talk about some history here. Uh, this is what we're talking about. These are the latest figures from the Defense Department. These are official figures of numbers of traumatic brain injury uh, cases that they've seen in the, in the era of uh, our war in Iraq and Afghanistan. You'll notice that it's a total of 300,000 cases. The vast majority of them, 82.4%, are what we call mild traumatic brain injury. Okay, uh, moderate and severe, relatively uncommon, penetrating, rather uncommon. It's mostly mild, and you say, oh, well, mild, mild TBI. That's okay. That's better. Well, what do we mean by mild TBI in the military? Well, these, this is the classification that's used, and to be mild TBI, you have to have. Glasgow Coma Scale from 12 to 15. Okay, a period of altered consciousness of up to 24 hours. Loss of consciousness up to 30 minutes. All right, and we're going to talk about some uh, TBIs related to sports, particularly American football. And the last time I saw a case of loss of consciousness up to 30 minutes, okay, that doesn't happen. But you can have loss of consciousness up to a, a half an hour and still be mild TBI. All right? uh, and a duration of post-traumatic amnesia of up to 24 hours. Now, by definition, routine uh, structural studies, CT, MRI, no lesions. Okay? That's our definition. And we have a quarter of a million incidents have been seen uh, over the last 10 years. Now, these figures are a gross underestimate of this problem. Okay? Because for many years in this, during this period, the TBIs were, were uh, really considered to be transitory things in the same way that we uh, approach sports TBIs. Use the same language, shake it off, sit on the bench for a few minutes, get back with the team, team needs you, back out on patrol. So, and so these never got reported, they never got worked up, and so there are many more than these. Okay? But this is just a raw figure. In fact, there's a, recent, there's a recent paper out that tried to come up with better figures, in the, particularly in the early years, and using um, uh, some surrogate data said that this was, it was really four times this number. 
vast majority of these are related to a particular type of weapon used by the enemy called an uh, improvised explosive device, or IED. These are generally constructed from artillery shells and other kind of ammunition, wired together with a detonator uh, uh, that's a remote detonator. Some, sometimes it was a trigger wire, but more recently uh, they've gotten very clever in that these can be controlled by cell phones. Okay, so a fellow can be standing on the side of the road, lighting a cigarette, and just kind of watching, you know, the troops go by, and he'll reach in his pocket and he'll push a button on his cell phone, and the thing goes off. Right? These are very powerful, right? Um, and they're the major weapon of choice. Very inexpensive, they're easy to build. Um, and you see that, but I want to give you some flavor of what we're talking about here. And so I'm going to show you an IED exposure. Okay? It's a bit larger than what is typical, but it's not completely out of scale or out of range. To give you some idea of what these things will do, uh, typical under city garbage truck, maybe one of your double decker buses, it'll throw a vehicle like that 20 feet in the air. Um, now, when that happens, uh, there are a number of interactions that are important. The first thing is that there is uh, produce what's called a blast wave. This is a high pressure wave that comes out from the explosion at the speed of sound. Uh, it uh, will penetrate the skull. You can measure the blast wave inside the intact skull. So it interacts with the brain. Okay. Uh, typically, and that's called the primary uh, injury, Typically, these IEDs will also have fragments in them. They'll put nuts and bolts and rocks, all kinds of things, in, around the, the casing of the IED. And so those get propelled and can produce awful wounds. Those are the secondary wounds. And then finally, the blast wave will not only penetrate through the skull, but it will project, it, it will propel anything in its path, including the individual. Uh, out. Uh, and so it's not uncommon that you'll find somebody who's been exposed to an IED a hundred yards down the street against a brick wall. Right? So we have this tertiary impact uh, injury as well. If they're in a vehicle, the vehicle is turned upside down, it's like being in a, in a can and being shaken, so they impact the walls of the inner side of the, of the vehicle, things like that. So there are virtually no pure primary blast injuries. And there are always these secondary and tertiary type injuries. Um, and it's important to sort this out. Uh, but the other aspect of this is that because of the nature of this, our, our troops are protected by these Kevlar helmets and in particular ceramic body armor. It's very well designed. And so they don't die in the way they used to in formal 
force. Uh, the total number, we've deployed 2.4 million service members to Iraq and Afghanistan in the last 12 years. 2.4 million. Number of deaths? 6,000. A little over 6,000. So compared to Vietnam, which was 55,000. World wars, hundreds of thousands, millions. Uh, so six thousand. So they come home, they get, and they go back out on patrol. Okay, and so here's a group of service members. It's a small end, but it's data at least that we have, in which they went carefully went back over their histories and their deployments to say how many TBIs have you had, how many IED explosions have you had, all right, and. You'll notice here that 62% have had over five glass PBI explosions. 21% had, had had over 20 blast explosions. And 11% had had 50 or more. Okay? These uh, service members keep being redeployed. You know, we don't draft people anymore, they get sent back. All right, so uh, when I took this job, I said, well, what do we know about exposure to a, to a blast? What is blast injury due to the brain? Uh, what are its acute effects? Uh, when you're exposed to the blast wave of 90, what does it do to the brain? And I would have thought we would know a lot about that. Okay, my God. Uh, this, you know, let me find out what's been learned, and so there's some things I can fill in. Uh, what is there? Well, this all started with the development of the first, uh, the prototype high explosive, and that's TNT. TNT was synthesized by the German dye industry in 1863 as a yellow dye, as a yellow color, bright yellow color. And they didn't realize for 40 years that it was an explosive because it's hard to detonate. Uh, and eventually somebody figured out how to detonate it, and they said, oh my god, look at this. This is not a dye. This is, this is hot stuff. Okay. Um, and the difference between a high explosive and a regular explosive is the high explosive makes the blast wave. Uh, the low energy explosives like dynamite doesn't really give you a blast wave, okay, because it's, it's slower. So they had much more energy in the explosion and it's much more rapid. And now we have a blast wave to deal with. Okay? So, so that was about the turn of the century. So once they realized that, it was very quick that they said, well, maybe we can put this in artillery shells and use this in, as a weapon of war. And so that was first started in 1902 in the Russian and Japanese uh, uh, war. But it really, its widespread use was in World War I. Okay? And basically, uh, and of course World War II, but the, the trench wars of the Western Front of World War I were basically month-long exchanges of high explosives back and forth, killing everything inside. Okay? Uh, and this was man's first real exposure to this. Okay? And same idea that I had in terms of what does the blast wave do to the brain came to this individual, Major Frederick Mott, Dr. Mott. Okay? Is that a name that's familiar to you? 
He's one of the pioneer British neuropathologists. Yes. Right? Uh, and he had he was trained in neurology and pathology, pathologist to the London County Council of Asylums. Okay? Uh, one of the early pioneer neuropathologists. And he uh, here he is in this World War One uniform. Here he is right here with this unit. Uh, and he was very interested in the effects of high explosives upon a central nervous system. Here are people that have been exposed to blast. They don't seem to be damaged when you look at the body, but they're dead. What's happened to their brain? And he wrote these uh, papers in The Lancet, 1916, describing what he found. What did he find? He found focal hemorrhages in the white matter, basically. Some subarachnoid hemorrhages. Okay? Very little micro. Okay? He, he, was, uh, he had described the basic lesions of uh, General Parasis. He's a member of the Royal Society. Uh, um, interesting fellow. Okay? Um, so he describes in these two Lancet papers two cases. There's a third case, but it's a spinal cord injury. It's really irrelevant to the discussion here. That's the total experience in World War I. Okay. World War II comes along, and after World War II, Cohen and Briskin, not neuropathologists, describe in the paper in the Archives of Pathology nine cases of acute death related to uh, blast exposure. Uh, it's mostly gross descriptions, not neuropathologists, uh, mostly some focal hemorrhages, and uh, that's it. That's the entire literature. We're done okay, on the acute effects of blast injury on the brain. All right. Now, we recognize that when, when these individuals come home after their blast injury, they have persistent symptoms. Very common. And these are the symptoms that they have. These are from VA Department of Defense guidelines. They have physical symptoms such as headache, nausea, vomiting, dizziness, blurred vision, sleep disturbance. Very common, very disturbing, very hard to treat. Okay? Uh, they can have sensitivity to light and noise, balance problems, hearing and visual dif difficulties are also very common. Okay? They have cognitive problems, they have impaired attention, concentration, recent memory loss. They have difficulty in speed of processing. To do these time, you know, cognitive tests, they're always slow on, on this, and they can have impairment of judgment and executive function. Okay? And finally, it's very common to have these behavioral and emotional problems of depression, anxiety, agitation, irritability, impulsivity. They have mood changes, mood swings. Uh, uh, they can have aggressive outbursts, and they can have periods of, of uh, severe depression. Okay. These are all persistent, okay? And these, these are long-term effects. All right, so what do we know about the long-term effects of being exposed to blast? Okay, so what's the literature there? Well, we go back to World War I, okay? And in World War I, 
as they say in the in the particularly in the Western Front, the battles of Verdun, Somme, right, uh, which went on for months, where the individuals were in these trenches, were moving back and forth, uh, and basically it was a bombardment of, of high explosives. Uh, in the in the battle for Verdun, ten months. I'd like to guess how many artillery shells were exchanged in the 10 months? Billions. 40 million. There wasn't a blade of grass, a leaf on a tree. And in between all of this are the trenches with the individuals living there. Exposed to okay. uh, You see these, this tent village here, this one of numerous such villages. Uh, that were behind the lines, that were built to evaluate people who were suffering from a, uh, a complex of symptoms that were neurobehavioral, okay, and that medically were, were categorized as NYDN, or not yet diagnosed neurologic, or simply shell shock. Right? Uh, shell shock was a term that was introduced World War I. Uh, there was no accepted clinical definition for this entity, but the clinical symptoms that are clearly reported are persistent headache, poor concentration, amnesia, difficulty sleeping, abrupt mood swings, impulsive acts, and frequently suicide. Now, you couldn't keep the gel shock victims on the front. You couldn't return them to the trenches. They were useless. They couldn't be soldiers anymore. They had to be returned home for further workup and treatment. Okay? And so the first hospital where they were returned to was a recently opened hospital outside of London called the Maudsley. The Maudsley was, was built as a research psychiatric hospital to look at the biologic underpinnings of psychiatric illness. It's 96, 97, Alzheimer's, I just described Alzheimer's disease, neurofibromatic tangles, uh, getting a lot of attention, and people were thinking in terms of the biology of psychiatric disease, and so the Mosley was built to serve that purpose. Uh, it took a while till it was built, and it was just about to open when World War I started. And I said, ah, we need this hospital. We're going to send all these, these NYDN, not yet diagnosed neurologic, to the Maudsley, which they did. I guess who is the director of the Maudsley? Dr. Mott. Okay. And Dr. Mott has staffed the entire hospital with people trained in essentially neurology, to describe them, some even in neuropathology, but you know. People were looking at this as a neurologic disorder, and they considered shell shock to be an organic neurologic disorder. Okay, probably related to unknown physical changes caused by the explosive blast, possibly toxic exposure. You know, gases released when the explosion went off. But that's the way they thought of this disorder. Now, the Maudsley was not big enough for the thousands of patients that were coming home. It was 10 percent of the casualties. Okay, so there were thousands. And so they needed another hospital, and there was the Magho Hospital outside of Liverpool, which is a 
very large psychiatric hospital. And they took the overflow. So it was going to the two different hospitals. Now, the Mago Hospital was staffed by people who were psychiatrists. This was at the point that psychiatry had just split off from neurology. Before that, it was sort of together. No. Okay? They, this was the, really the height of Freud, Jung, and they were looking at this as a psychiatric disorder. This was a functional psychiatric disorder, a psychoneurosis related to emotional disturbances, repressed memories, etc. That's the way they worked on their cases. Okay. World War I ends, and we have literally over 100,000 shell shock victims wandering around in every nook and cranny of What are we going to do with those? Oh, and in particular, are we going to pension them? Okay. And so, what does the government do when they're faced with a question like that? They form a committee, okay. and they form the Southboro Committee. Uh, and uh, it's actually formally called the War Office Committee of Inquiry into Shosha. Right? And it's led by the Lord of South And they take, they take testimony from a, a whole bunch of experts. Uh, and in particular, uh, People who had seen these cases uh, in uh, on the front, and they meet and they talk and they meet and they talk and they talk and they talk and they finally come out with their recommendations. It's a 200-page document, which you can get, uh, and basically this is what they say: One, shell shock is to be considered a convenient invasion of duty if not disguised malignant. No case of psychoneurosis or of mental breakdown, even when attributed to a shell explosion or the effects thereof, should be classified as a battle casualty. And finally, shell shock is not a valid diagnostic entity, and the use of the term should therefore be banned. So basically, we had World War I, we had exposure to high explosives, and the development of shell shock, whatever that is. Okay? Now, if you went to the Maudsley under Dr. Mott and his crew, this was considered to be a neurologic disorder. If you went to the Maghull, being seen by people being, you know, trained and uh, approaching things uh, under Freud, this was a psychiatric disorder. Southboro report put an end to Dr. Mott's consideration. Dr. Mott's hypothesis was no longer valid and should not be pursued. Well, okay. That was World War I. But we continued to have wars in the 20th century. And we continued to see the same thing. So in World War II, when it was seen extensively, about 10% of the casualties 
World War II. We couldn't use shell shock anymore. So now we called it battle or combat fatigue. So that was used then, used in Korea. Then we got to Vietnam. When we got to Vietnam, again, it seemed very extensively. And now it had a new component that wasn't seen before that, and that was substance abuse. Right? Drugs were very commonly available in Vietnam and after Vietnam, they came home from Vietnam, and substance abuse was a major part of this whole problem. But the rest of it was all there. Okay. And at the time, the DSM-3 was being written. DSM-3 is the catalog that catalogs all psychiatric diseases and defines them and how you diagnose them. And a group of psychiatrists uh, who were anti-Vietnam War activists but also recognized this extent of this problem went to the, the people that were writing the DSM-3 and said, we've got a new disease that you've got to put in your book. And it's got these these aspects to them, and it's a psychiatric disease, uh, and we want to call it Vietnam Syndrome. And they said, well, oh, this is very interesting. Uh, you know, uh, we'd like to put it in the book, but we don't like the term Vietnam Syndrome, because some of us have seen this problem in people who've never been in Vietnam. Uh, and to actually, you know, make it a kind of place disease, that's silly. If you guys can come up with a better term, we'll put it in the book. Okay? This is this is a Robert J. Lifton, who was one of the um, prime movers in this. He's still active today. Okay, uh, so they went back and they thought, well, all right, we can't use Vietnam syndrome. What do we use? And so they came up with a new term, and that was the term they came up with: post-traumatic stress disorder. Okay, and of course. This is ground. Okay. So, kind of switching gears, since they're getting multiple head traumas, can we learn anything about the long-term effects of exposure to high explosives by studying athletes who've been exposed to repeated head trauma? Uh, so let's talk a little bit about that. Okay? And that really is a, um, starts with boxing, at least historically. Uh, and uh, this is uh, Harrison Martland, who wrote a paper in 1928 in the Journal of the AMA called Punch Drunk. And Martland, who was a pathologist, he was a forensic pathologist in Newark, New Jersey, who was interested in boxing. Uh, and would hang around gyms and go to fights and knew people in the boxing arena and knew that individuals, after they had had a career in boxing, people after they retired, would develop a syndrome, uh, which he called punch drunk. There were some other kind of funny names for it. But basically, he wanted to make the medical profession aware of the existence of this, this, this entity. Uh, and suggested that it be studied. Basically. There's no pathology in this paper. Actually, there is pathology. There's one case in this, which is an acute death in the rain with an epidural hematoma. So it, it doesn't have anything to do with uh, uh, punch drop. 
and why it is in there is a little unclear. At any rate, but basically he was suggesting that this was something that ought to be studied. He suggested that there be longitudinal studies followed by autopsies. He even suggests in the paper that it's a neurodegenerative condition because it's progressive. Okay? Amazing. 1928. Well, the clinical pathologic studies were not done for quite a while and really came out uh, uh, under this and other, other papers by Nick Corsillis and, and colleagues uh, uh, in the Renwell Hospital. Uh, and that's, that's Dr. Corsillis, who's the neuropathologist in this. And they described 15 cases of boxers who had died that they collected, and they described them clinically, and they described them neuropathologically. And um, they found that they had enlarged ventricles, they had cavum uh, septum sometimes in fenestration, as you see here, and in particular, the extensive nerve fibroid tangles that they can develop. Okay? Uh, they, here they are in the neocortex, under higher power, here, here in the locus cerulius, or the expansion nigra as well, uh, and uh, that this was a tangle disease cow disease. We didn't know it was cow at the time, but that came later. Um, and then, of course, as you know, came the whole explosion in terms of the identification of this disorder among American football players. And that was the other one, and I'm not sure this is going to play either. This is a short portion of a movie made by the NFL, this before they had their problem, okay, to promote the sport based on the, the trauma that it causes. I'm, I'm sorry I don't have the video that goes, the, the audio that goes with it, but they really, you know. Uh, but uh, I figured, you know, you don't get to see a lot of this kind of sport. All of this has been slowed down. It's the kind of thing you. Encephalopathy, which is the same disease that Corsillus described in boxers, uh, neuropathologically. There's no difference between the two. Uh, the only difference I would say is that in the boxers, typically they're much later in the course of the disease. They usually got, have gotten to the Parkinsonian and demented stage. Most of these NFL players die prematurely, uh, related to the disease actually, because of the behavioral disease. Many of them are suicides, uh, or 
Yes, because they're doing stupid things because they don't anticipate uh, the, uh, the consequences of their actions. Okay. Uh, but here was a 50-year-old man who had died 12 years after retiring from the NFL. He had a thymic mood disorder, deficits in memory and judgment, and Parkinson's and symptoms. Died of an MI. And this is the pathology they showed, okay? This is all they showed us, okay? Which is really precious little one. Uh, caused some of the some of the problems that arose, which we could perhaps talk about later. But basically a 50-year-old, I mean, shouldn't have tang can have tangles, but you know, I'd like to see more, you know, kind of thing. Uh, uh, however, they concluded their article by saying this case draws attention to the need for further studies in the cohort of retired NFL players to elucidate the neuropathologic sequelae of repeated mild traumatic brain injury in professional football. Uh, then came the BU group that collected much larger numbers of these cases and perhaps worked them up and showed us a bit more of the pathology, although I, I still think we have a long way to go in terms of uh, you know, the full extent of the pathology, its distribution, things like that. At any rate, uh, in a series of articles, uh, probably most recently and their most complete article is this article in Brain, uh, reporting on 85 subjects with a history of repeated mild traumatic brain injury. 80 of them are former athletes. Okay? Uh, and 68 had evidence of CTE. In that series, of the former NFL players, all but one showed this. Okay. Uh, and it's something like 40 cases. They, they did some age match controls with no history of TBI, and they had no evidence of this. Okay. Now, uh, this is what it looks like, uh, and I'll show you more low power, but it's rather extensive nerve tangle formation. It tends to be in superficial layers. It has a very distinct distribution. And once you've seen a bunch of these cases, they're very easy to diagnose and distinguish from the other tailopathies. Okay. Well, you have to know where to look. The tangles themselves are identical to Alzheimer tangles. There's a great deal of neuritic tau. Uh, uh, here it is in lower power, a uh, fairly advanced case. Uh, here you see the superficial, predominantly superficial involvement. It's not that the deeper layers don't get tangles, but they, they don't get as many. And this is the flip of what Alzheimer's disease is. Alzheimer's has a predominance of the deeper layers as opposed to the superficial layers. A perivascular pre predominance uh, and a tendency to, to develop in the depths of cell site, where frequently there are astrocytic tangles, astrocytes would tell. Uh, rather prominent hippocampal involvement, and in the hippocampus, it's all layers of uh, Ammon's horn, which does not happen in Alzheimer's disease, and some other locations that are really quite unusual. Uh, the anterior insula is severely involved, in the area that really only gets involved rather late in Alzheimer's disease, and generally not, not very prominently. Uh, mammary bodies prominently things like that, uh, and brainstem nuclei as well. Um, well, this caused an explosion in the media. Okay? It was just a 
there were over 200 articles, mostly on the front page of the New York Times, mostly written by this fellow, uh, Alan Schwartz. Uh, where are you going? I, I was getting called constantly for comments and all of this stuff. This is the commissioner of the NFL, Roger Goodell. This is one of his former players, who's severely demented, uh, testified before Congress. Uh, uh, they have a serious problem. This is a huge business. It's not this, right now. This is billions and billions of dollars. Uh, um, and at least this era is reasonably well described in this book, League of Denial. Okay? So if you want a real summary of what went on, uh, that's, that's a reasonable resource. At any rate, to go back to our discussion, okay, if you look at contact sport athletes with autopsy-diagnosed CD, what do they have? They have chronic headaches, short-term memory problems, impulsive acts, abrupt mood swings between outbursts of anger and depression, sleep disturbance, substance abuse, and suicide. Uh, remember that list? Chronic headaches, short-term memory problems, impulsive acts. I mean, it seemed like our soldiers were getting CTE, at least when we looked at the symptoms. Right? Uh, and the question arose, is CTE expected? affecting the brains of military personnel after repeated blast exposure. Right? Did the military have a towel problem? Right. Now we don't know the answer to that, okay? but at least the preliminary data says no. It's different. It's probably affecting different, similar areas of the brain, but it's not, I mean, it's not that we haven't seen tangles in, in this, well, let me go on with it what the evidence is. Now, there have been five cases with neuropathology reported claiming to be CTE uh, of individuals who were deployed in Iraq and Afghanistan. Right? Uh, four of them had documented IED exposure. One had no blast but the problem is that almost all of them have had previous civilian TBIs. They were hockey and football players. Had a motor vehicle accident at eight with concussion. Uh, played high school football, multiple concussions from fist fights. I mean, so sorting this out is gonna be very difficult, okay? But it's interesting that three of the five were diagnosed with PTSD and the other two with depression. In the brain paper, Dr. McKee indicates that she's got 17 brain additional CTE cases that were veterans, but we know nothing about their exposure. It's just, it's a line in the paper, we don't know what to make. Okay? So, so whatever we have here is really, doesn't answer the question, okay? Uh, because there's the overlap with civilian uh, uh, exposure, okay? So basically, what do we know about the long-term effects of uh, uh, exposure? I mean, this is not very helpful. <laughs> uh, this is one of the cases. Uh, th this is Amalo's case. Here he shows us a bit more pathology. Uh, this is what the Brown, uh, the, the uh, uh, BU group has shown us, and 
here, I mean, it's hard to know what to make of that. Um, and then we come back to post-traumatic stress disorder and the question that was raised in World War I by Mott. Is this a neurologic or psychiatric disorder? There's a very strong correlation between TBI during deployment in the past decade and subsequent development of PTSD. Uh, so is PTSD a psychiatric response to emotional stresses of combat, which is what is typically said, or are at least a proportion of those cases due to physical disturbances in the brain, such as CTE or other, other such lesions, okay? It depends on whether you're looking at it from the magnal or the morphine. Right? A very interesting study, reported uh, a couple of years ago, in which they screened 2,000 veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan. And they found there were 126 combat veterans who had had at least one TBI with loss of consciousness. Uh, the mean was three, but the range was one to eight. Okay? They had 16 combat veterans with TBI, but no loss of consciousness. And then the third group uh, was a group who have had uh, of 21 veterans with at least one TBI with loss of consciousness as a civilian. Okay, being knocked out in a bar fight or in a field accident, that sort of thing. Okay. Of the cohort of 126 combat veterans with mild TBI and loss of consciousness, there were substantially, I'll show you the data in a minute, higher rates of PTSD and neurologic deficit. The number of episodes of loss of consciousness with TBI correlated positively with PTSD severity. Okay? And if you had had five episodes of mild TBI with loss of consciousness, 90% of those cases had PTSD. 90%. Here's the data, actually. Uh, here's the civilian TBI with loss of consciousness. PTSD is in red. Okay. Mild TBI with no loss of consciousness, PTSD. And with loss of consciousness, traumatic. Okay. 65%. So is the medical community struggling by looking at a similar clinical entity from two viewpoints? PTSD from psychiatry and TBI from neurology. So I started to wonder about this and said, if you had an athlete who had had multiple TBIs and was complaining of memory problems, difficulty concentrating, sleep disturbance, mood swings, depression, substance abuse, and you took off his, uh, you know, his uniform for playing sports, you put him in a uh, uh, service member's uniform and worked him up, as the military would work him up, he'd be sent where? He'd be sent to psychiatry and he would get a diagnosis. If you took this guy, who is complaining of the same problems. And you dressed him up this way, 
and you sent them to the NFL doctors or the you know people that evaluate that, he would get a diagnosis. Interestingly, if you look at these are the figures on TBI from which I get that pie chart I started out with. And you'll notice that in 2005, there was a dramatic increase in the number of TBIs related to IEDs. Okay? This is not ascertainment. It's about the time when the, when the cell phone detonators came in. Okay? And they realized they really, they really had something there, and they started to make this all over the place and use them extensively. And so the, the rates of TBI went up dramatically in 2005. Uh, this is the rates of hospital admissions for substance abuse, anxiety, and other psychiatric disorders. Uh, this is complications of pregnancy, unrelated. Okay. This is the diagnosis of PTSD in the various services. And this is suicidal ideation. Okay. Suicide is a major problem in the military. Unfortunately, we don't have data before this, but we think that it was, it was much lower. Uh, the suicide problem among active duty has come to the point where it was more likely you would die of your own hand than of the enemy. One a day, approximately, and that continues, even though we're no longer over there, for all intents and purposes. The suicide problem in the, in the Veterans Administration they, they report, and we're, we're, we're sure it's an underestimate, 23 suicides a day. So, this is all I can find in terms of what's been done on the human neuropathology after plastic emotion. This is all we know. And, I raised the question, I have raised the question, very high level, is brain damage such as CTE partially responsible for the current high rate of PTSD, substance abuse, and suicide in the military? Okay. Uh, are there additional brain lesions unique to explosive blast exposure that are yet to be identified? Now, we're a little further along than, than that. Those are the questions that I've raised, and actually, Without going into detail, we believe that we're beginning to find lesions in the brain that are unique to blast exposure. They're not seen in civilians, they're not seen in military personnel that have not seen actions, basically, uh, uh, that are unique to blast exposure. Okay? We're trying to put together all of that uh, as quickly as possible to get that published and start really discussing that on many different levels. The implications are huge. Uh, up until very recently, somebody who was suffering, who had been deployed and was diagnosed with PTSD, could not get uh, purple heart, could not get a, a disability related to uh, combat exposure, in the same way that the South Carolina Court considered it to be not a plaster injury, not even to the point of considering it to be a, a form of migraine, right? 
this continues in terms of the way we uh, uh, consider this. We are still struggling with the 100-year-old dilemma of shell shock raised by Major Bond. Now, so, a few other things that I want to uh, do. But there was a great excitement about studying this with neuroimaging. We have all these whiz-bang things. We actually sent three MRI machines to Afghanistan. <laughs> in the middle of the desert with sand, dust, and all of this. And they, they imaged hundreds of these post-blast uh, service members. No useful data came from this. Okay. Um, but the concept that imaging shows you everything in, you know, as a form of pathology is very much there. Uh, now, you have to realize that of the cases of CTE and, and football players had all been, all had very good high-resolution MRI studies that were all negative, okay? Uh, indeed, based on that, Roger Goodell testified under oath before Congress saying, my experts tell me there's no problem. Because the MRIs were negative, okay? Even though they were low. Current resolution of neuroimaging is about a thousand times less than what Margaret and I have had through our entire career. Okay? Not to even mention immunohistochemistry and all those other things, but just in terms of the resolution. And to put this in perspective, let's, let's hypothesize. Let's suppose that Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease were first described in 2005. Never been described before. Okay? And all we knew about those diseases were their clinical presentation and course, and these images. What would you conclude about its pathophysiology, how to diagnose it, and how to treat it? Would you know anything about the cellular pathology? No. Okay. And so ultimately, as new diseases are described, we must get down to the tissue level. I mean, uh, if we've learned anything in the last 150 years, I think it's that. Okay? Uh, and so what, what I have tried to do is to establish a brain bank repository to collect, characterize, and store these brain specimens from deceased military personnel for current and future TBR research. Okay? Uh, we're going to distribute these tissues widely to whoever's qualified. Uh, we're still collecting them, and we don't have enough of a collection to really announce their availability. Right? But it's, it's going to happen soon. Okay? Uh, however, of what we need to do with these tissues, I think these are the major things. Uh, we need to answer those questions. What are the acute effects of blast exposure? Which is what I started with. What are the long-term effects of blast exposure? Specifically, that's exposure. Okay. Uh, what's the prevalence of CTE, or is there a tau problem in the military? Okay. As I said, we've seen some, some, some tau standing in relatively young people who've been exposed to blast, but the extent of it is just not nearly enough to explain the clinical and So I think that it, it is triggering a neurodegenerative uh, cascade, but it's really not the nature of it. It's not the problem. Okay? At least at this point. 
Whether it is 30 years down the road, I can't answer. Okay? Somebody else is going to have to answer that one. Right? I can't do this forever. Are some of the psychiatric issues in the military, such as PTSD and suicide, due to identifiable organic disturbance? And I think very clearly the answer is yes. Okay. The extent of it, I don't know. Okay. But we're walking into this whole brain-mind area, which is fascinating and I think very important, and is going to have to be solved by looking at a lot of cases and in particular the distribution of lesions. And I think it's going to open up a a fascinating era in terms of our understanding of, of uh, the relationship of uh, psychiatric symptomatology to organic brain disease. Okay. And importantly, what's the amount of exposure to blast that uh, is needed, basically? Some of these individuals have been mildly exposed, some of them have been very severely exposed. What is needed? There are probably susceptibility questions Important. Okay. Uh, when do you pull somebody off the battlefield? Um, and, and this is going on. I mean, it's the same question as the soccer mom question. It's the same question as that you know with, with athletes. But it's an important question for the military because it has to do with manpower. Uh, and we don't know. Okay. And that's going to be an important question to answer. So, uh, well, this is. Head for a brain, brain collection, but let me just stop here and acknowledge some of the people we've been working with. This is a large team and all of that. And uh, uh, I, I sort of apologize that I haven't been able to give you the bottom line. But what we're finding, uh, part of that is because we're not there yet. Part of that is because uh, I work for the military. Uh, but let it go with that. Uh, but we hope to have a public. Certainly.